Do they actually have two-way mirrors? I've never seen a two-way mirror <laughs> in my life. Out now. Watching the detectives with New York Times best-selling author, Cara Hunter. You must scrutinise the evidence. Don't just take it on blind faith. I'm assuming most of you have a, probably an unhealthy interest in, in crime and crime scenes. Is that realistic? Can you be accurate within a couple of hours as to when that took place? Do you think that AI will become one of your experts? I didn't see this before. This must be from the killer. You put a crime scene on, I was like, oh, can I have a look? No, no, <laughs> no one goes in. I'm not even allowed in. That wonderful machine where you can put in your fingerprints and it'll go beep, 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 beep. Firstly, yes, I'm not disputing that it is Cara Hunter's DNA. And, it, and he literally did say, oh, it's a fair cop. Yeah. From the author of Murder in the Family and Close to Home, watching the detectives. And just remember, just because it's on telly doesn't mean it's true. Watching the detectives is a Laughing Frog production. Available in all the usual places. at our garden. We've been here for about 19 years and here is uh, a village in the Weald of Kent, not a million miles away from Tenterton. It's the, the part of Kent which still has hills, then it becomes flat and otherworldly when you get to Romney Marsh. And uh, I'm a London expat. My name's Martin Gurdon. I'm a journalist. I suppose I'm a motoring journalist. It's what I do most of the time. Anyway, I write about cars for a living, which is a mixed blessing, really. I've got the job I wanted when I was 13, and I'm now about 113, so uh, some of the guilt has peeled from the gingerbread. I don't just write about cars, though. I write about narrowboats. I write about chickens. I've written about industrial relations. I once, and this is no word of a lie, wrote 500 words on velvet toilet tissue. And there's a terrible joke in there somewhere about how the pen went, kept going through the paper, isn't there? But uh, we'll, we'll spare you that one. We share our garden with a flock of chickens and three ducks. And being a journalist, I am by nature an opportunist. And about 20-odd years ago, I started writing about the chickens. And it's turned into a a weird little cottage industry bit of my career, writing and talking about hens and ducks and what they do. I'm looking as emerging from the hen house comes Richard the Cockerel. Richard is about two years old. He's a Brahma Cockerel, uh, so he basically looks like a sort of feathered Russian army hat with legs and uh, a blood pressure issue because he's got a very red face. And uh, he's also got a follicle issue as well, poor sod. He's disappeared back inside the henhouse. Well, let's. Well, you can't see, you see, because it's this is this is digital media, as we have to describe it now when we go to visit our proctologist. Richard is a Brahma cockerel. And he's about two, and he's called Richard because his previous owner is a food scientist from Suffolk called Richard. Uh, and um, anyway, Richard the cockerel lived with his mother. Um, in a, a small run behind this chap's 16th century house in the middle of a village near Berris and Edmonds. And Richard is capable of making a lot of noise. And the neighbours began to say, one Richard is enough, the other one has to go. And since Richard the food scientist was paying the mortgage and the cockerel wasn't, it was the cockerel who left, and he came to me. He and I have 
a problematic relationship because both of us feel the garden is our territory. And when the sap rises in the summer, uh, Richard, whose gonads have definitely dropped, sees me as a love rival and will attempt to attack me. He's not very good at this. He does these sort of idiot kung fu leaps and pecks my bottom. Uh, but I have to out-macho him, which is, is not my natural state, I have to say. Basically, that means grabbing him and holding him upside down whilst he gives me a liverish look with uh, one eye. You know, they've got eyes around the side of their heads, you see, and it's very cruel. I just, just hold him at a, an angle so he can only see, <laughs> see me with one eye. And we have a walk around the garden, and then I cuddle him, which he loathes. I think he thinks that's possibly not what real men do. You tickle him under the wattles. His poor little brain overloads, so it's a case of, oh, that's quite nice. That's quite, you bastard, you bastard, get off. No, 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 under the wings, under the wings, and a little bit more there. No, I hate you, I hate you. I'll rip your lungs out. And then I put him down and he runs away. You might have heard a quack there. That's Cloud, who... Uh, we have three ducks, uh, Cloud and Anonymous. And um, Cloud is called Cloud because uh, we bought her, along with a couple of chickens from a chap close to the Dungeness nuclear power station, so you know, there's a, a taste element to that. Razors, um, who's the, the most gentle, affable beast, came from Poplar Farm, and uh, I, I was uh, born in the 1960s, so I'm old enough to remember the film The Long Good Friday, this gangster flick with Bob Hoskins in it. And uh, there's a character in that called Razors for... Uh, reasons that I shan't go into and we thought Poplar Farm Razors, well we'll call her that for the moment and then we'll think of a proper name for her and uh, we never have uh, Dear Anonymous who is a camel duck the other two are um, oh, long and stretched this is Lucy, I'm some kind of expert I can't think what they're called, Indian Runners Indian Runners. They, they're the sort of ducks that look like feathery milk bottles you know, ducks, little stumpy legs and uh, long necks anyway Anonymous uh, arrived uh, as, as a slight, as a bit of a waif. She and two chickens, two hybrid chickens, uh, one of whom is called Princess Leia, so we call the other one Darth, belonged to a guy who did a bit of nightclub security and worked in a pub. And uh, his hours meant he couldn't look after them, so he was looking for a new home. So we uh, we rehomed them, and uh, they arrived as a unit. And as soon as they arrived, um, Anonymous paired off with the ducks and uh, the other two chickens ultimately made friends with our chickens and now they all hate each other, particularly at mealtimes. Now, one of the things about podcasts is that it's people talking about themselves because they're actually so much more fascinating than you are, which is why I'm doing it, of course, because I've got an ego the size of a shed. But that's, that's not relevant right now, is it? I'm looking at the garden. I've got a producer in the background, and he said, talk about you. You're wittering on, hovering around the subject. Yes, but you see, I went to public school, and we're all terribly nervous about these sort of things. Well, I'm, I'm a man in his middle 50s. Uh, I'm wearing rubber shoes and rubber gloves, and uh, I'm wearing some other clothes as well. And uh, the reason for that is that we're in the garden, and there's a pandemic, uh, although hopefully not here. I first kept chickens when I was 10, uh, which was a terrifically long time ago, back in the 1970s. I grew up in Kew in West London, which is not noted for its chicken keeping. 
Uh, but my mum, who came from Cumbria, or more specifically the now extinct county of Westmoreland, uh, didn't like suburban life and wanted to live in the countryside, so we moved to Bedfordshire. And if you come from Bedfordshire, apologies for what comes next, because it's now quite a nice county, but when we were there back in the 70s, it was a kind of weird landscape. It was a sort of uh, in industrial rural landscape, because... Uh, you had brick factories, you had lots of rolling flat fields and these dystopian buildings with big chimneys, huge factories that pumped out smoke that smelt of sulphur and we were midway in our little village between uh, one of the largest brick factories in Europe and uh, a rubbish tip uh, where seagulls came from all over the country to... um, uh, packet, Cadbury smash uh, packets, you see, and uh, and old tins of... uh, Uh, Party 7 lager, because they were all pissed because it was so miserable. When I was about nine and a half, my mum became ill, and uh, she couldn't look after me, and my dad had a demanding job, and he couldn't look after me full-time, so I was put on a train to go and stay with an aunt and uncle who lived in Lancashire in the countryside, outside Preston, in a part of the world known as the Trough of Boland, which... People on their way to the Lake District tend to drive through and miss, but it's actually very beautiful in a kind of rugged farming sort of way. And so I arrived uh, with a suitcase, uh, feeling a bit confused, and moved in with them. And that was Uncle Mick and Aunt Pat. And Aunt Pat was a teacher in a village primary school, sort of Victorian rectangle with classrooms divided by those wooden folding doors. And... uh, there's some docking going on next door. Oh, sorry, barking. Barking. Got to be careful how you, you phrase these things, don't you? And Uncle Mick worked in insurance, came from Kendall in Cumbria, reckoned that all foreigners started south of Watford, only carried cash and would only drink beer out of a mug with a handle. Um, so, of course, when this plummy voice little boy arrived, Hello, Uncle. Yes, yes, I am from the south. Um, we didn't entirely hit it off, but bless him. He let me stay under his roof for 18 months. And they had a big garden. And their nearest neighbour was a farm run by three generations of the same farming family. And they had cows and sheep and pigs and chickens uh, in batteries. When I was about 10 of a weekend, I would earn 50 pence a day collecting eggs in the battery farm. I mean, now that would be considered... Uh, child labour and they would be in receipt of attention from social services I should think getting a 10 year old child to do that but it was just a weekend job and I started saving my 50 pences and I thought what can I spend them on so I thought it'd be quite fun to have some chickens so I worked on my aunt and uncle and I now realise I was very lucky because my uncle had wanted to keep peacocks (laughs) And his wife said, you're not having those because of the noise and the mess. She said, he can have a few chickens at the bottom of the garden, provided they don't break out and eat my vegetables. And he doesn't have a cockerel because of the noise. And there was a shed with a kind of little bit of waste ground behind it at the bottom of the garden. So I fenced this off and there were some old breeze blocks and bits of corrugated iron. So I made a kind of chicken hovel arrangement out of these things. And my first flock was a motley assortment of ex-battery burnout cases with limps and naked bottoms who did break out all the time and and murdered my aunt's vegetables. And the cockerel moratorium wasn't a success either because I acquired a cockerel whom I christened Fred. 
Now, Fred was essentially a sort of troubadour chicken. He was a kind of male bimbo with spurs. He was a jungle fowl, so he was a very pretty bird. He had a broad chest with lovely golden green plumage and Napoleonic hat tail feathers, big red comb, big red wattles, and he was blind in one eye because he'd been in a punch-up. And I think he'd been somebody's breeding bird that had escaped because he'd ended up down at the battery. And I'd been going up and down collecting these eggs from serried ranks of white chickens. Actually... If you remember the 70s, you might remember that most eggs were white and you actually paid a premium for the brown ones. And I remember the farmer saying, well, they don't taste any different. I just make a little more money out of those. Anyway, dear Fred turned up at this battery farm and I, I would see him trundling about. It must have been a, a wonderful yet frustrating place to be a cockerel because there you were. It was lovely and warm. You had endless supply of food. Two and a half thousand girlfriends. No competition, but mostly those girlfriends were behind bars. <laughs> I thought, I'll catch that. And it took a while, but eventually I did, did get him, and he was semi-feral, so he slashed at me with his spurs and flapped his wings in my face, but I held on, and eventually I moved him in with my scrofulous flock. The only thing was he never really curbed his wandering ways, so um, once they'd have breakfast, he and his girls, I'd pootle off to primary school. He'd fly over the fence, ran down the lane to the next farmhouse where my friend's mother was having a bantam breeding programme. And she got up a bit later. When she did, Fred would be waiting for seconds in every respect. So, of course, when the love children arrived, there were complaints along the lines of, what are you going to do about your ruddy cockerel? He's ruining my breeding programme. And I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll clip his wings. Now... Anybody who knows anything about chickens will tell you that you should only clip one wing and not two, and you shouldn't use kitchen scissors. Um, well, they don't feel through the wings, they don't have any nerve endings, so it didn't hurt him, but, but I think it, it damaged his ego a bit because he was a bit, uh, a bit crinkle-cut round the peripheries. But all he did was flap the resultant stumps very, very hard, and he would rise slowly into the air like a madly overladen helicopter, then blunk down the other end and off he'd go. And in the end, even my friend's mum had a sneaking admiration for him. Um, I'm afraid he came to a sticky end. He was thumped by a Ford Cortina either going to or coming from his second family. But by that stage, he'd sired a replacement whom I christened with devastating originality, Fred Two, And I'd like to think he died with a smile on his beak. Um, I can see our current cockerel, Richard, uh, on the horizon, and he's got his enormous fluffy backside towards me in a, a gesture of contempt, and he's trundling about on the make. A question I'm often asked is, is why chickens? You know, because there are so many other accessories one can buy. Now, that's, that's in poor taste again, isn't it? No, it, it, I think it, it shows you... I, actually, I used to work with a man who said that the male sense of humour doesn't advance beyond the age of 10, and I think he's probably right. But um, I've, I've wondered, uh, which is what chickens do. I think the thing is with chickens and, and ducks is that they are distinctive characters. I think if you were a fan of rabbits, you might say the same thing, but I, they're not passive and they, they're all individuals. Um, I mean, our current flock, we were given... Uh, a, a Campbell duck called Anonymous, who's a sort of marauding barrel with feathers, uh, who's extremely vocal, and she comes up and makes lots of eye contact, and the whole thing is, wah, 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 pay me attention, pay me attention. You know, here's the orifice into which you put the food. 
and her two former cohorts are two hybrid chickens. And a hybrid chicken is basically the, the brown matrons that you see trundling around fields with the free-range chickens. They're the sort of standard working chicken. And one of them, we were told, had been named by the previous owner's teenage daughter as Princess Leia. And uh, Princess Leia is, is a perma-scruffy uh, opportunist. She's small and wiry uh, and appears to have stuck mid-molt. But she's completely confident She'll come rushing up to you and give you the eye. And if I'm cleaning the chickens out, I'll suddenly hear a bop, 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 bop near my left ear. And she'll be standing on the bag where I'm putting the stuff from the, the hen house that I'm cleaning out. And then she'll hop in and start scrabbling around to see if there are any bugs and things to eat. And she's very much in your face. And she's very tame. And if, if I catch her, um, because she does have a habit of going to the duck house and kicking all the um, straw out so that it ends up in the pond and rots and causes the pond to go green and horrible, which is a result. But she's completely fearless. Uh, and in fact, she saw the cockerel monstering the dog and thought, that's fun. So this small, scrofulous chicken now comes to, up to the dog uh, and gives him the eye and he cringes and gives her the whites of his eyes and, and, and rolls onto his back and uh, waves his legs at her. And of course, this is enormously satisfying. And she's the complete opposite of one of our other chickens, who is an Aracana cross called Slosher. Because we had a purebred Aracana. Aracanas almost look like bantams, but they're not, uh, with a big aeroplane tail fin tail feathers. And our original Aracana was called Slasher, because when we first bought her and I picked her up, she screamed into my ear and savaged my hands. So we thought, let's call her Slasher. And Slasher had a floppy comb that uh, went over one eye, a bit like a sort of artist's hat, you know, uh, Pablo Picasso with feathers. And, and she was immensely shy and a high-speed chicken, so she was quite athletic and would sprint from one side of the garden to the other in order to get away from you. And she laid blue-green eggs, not in the hen house very often, so we'd find these huge piles of bleached, rotting, vaguely blue-green eggs under bushes and things that she'd laid so we couldn't get to them. And um, she was such a character, and she lived to be ten, that uh, when the new Aracana cross arrived, we called her Slosher, you see, wordplay there. And she's standoffish at mealtimes. Everybody piles in except for Slosher, who stands back and waits for me to go away, and then she's in there as well. We also have Reggie um, and Ronnie. Well, no, we don't have Ronnie anymore. No, Ronnie's dead, sadly. Uh, and uh, they are, well, they were. Ronnie's a, a blue Orpington, and uh, is somewhere in the middle. And she will come to you for protection when uh, Richard is, is feeling feeling the urge, and she isn't, which is most of the time, she'll either rush onto the roof of the Bantam's hen house. We have two Bantams in individual accommodation called Dot and Dash. Uh, and they sort of peer up at her in, in a territorial way, and you know, they'll look at her feathery fundament above them, and, and you can see the look in their eyes, what are you doing? Go away. And she's up there saying, well, I'm avoiding being ravaged by an idiot cockerel, you see. Um, but every time you go into the garden, I mean, I, as a journalist, uh, one of the best features editors I ever wrote for 
said that there's no such thing as a boring story, only boring journalists, which is a get-out when you're given stuff to write, which is not always very edifying. And I'm quite often quite keen on what we hacks call displacement activity, which involves making a cup of tea and going into the garden. And the chickens are always doing something. You might find a group of them clumped under a bush, um, and there's there's a kind of feeding frenzy going on because they found some grubs and or bugs or I, I might have a quick look in the hen house uh, where someone's laying an egg and they're being chaperoned by somebody else so there'll be two sets of eyes peering at you and chickens although they have fixed expressions do have a knack of making it clear when they want you to bog off and leave them alone we had a, a brahma called Brahms, um, who was a, a, a gentle, stately bird who, who looked like a, a giant paisley pattern tie. And when my wife and I would have drinks in the garden uh, of an evening, we'd get a couple of wicker chairs and a table and um, sit there. And all the chickens would come rushing up in that kind of we're cute, feed us sort of way, and she'd stay about five foot away. And when they thought there was nothing else, they'd rush off and she'd come trundling over for her supply of own brand poppadoms. Um, and we had an understanding. The whole thing was, you know I'm there. Keep some back for me, will you? So, yeah, they're, they're, all, they're all distinctive characters. I mean, people have said to me, how can you tell them apart? Well, I mean, it's a bit like saying to a dog owner, how can you tell your Alsatian apart from that chihuahua? Um, they're, they're all pretty distinctive, really. There was a, about a 20-year gap where I didn't keep chickens at all. I'll come back to that. Um, But the reason that I keep them now is that my wife kept saying to me, you'd like to keep chickens again, wouldn't you? Which roughly translated as, I like the idea as long as you clean them out, which is how it works, really. Um, She's uh, much less familiar with chicken guano than me. But then she's a white-collar professional with a degree, so um, she's obviously not allowed to get covered in chicken shit, whereas I'm just a hoary-handed son of toil, and it's my lot in life. Oh, yes, and duck shit as well, which is um, lovely. You can glissand down slopes with duck shit. Um, yeah. But uh, Anyway, there are three ducks trundling across the garden at the moment in a sort of convoy. I mean, imagine if you were out in the Gobi Desert and you saw through a heat haze some camels in a camel train with Omar Sharif. Well, we're not getting that. We're getting one brown duck and two white ones. Yeah. uh, That's duck Esperanto for I've got this unpleasant itch. Will you scratch it? but it's not directed at me. That's true. I wouldn't make it up. And uh, anyway, they're hanging around at the moment because they can see me, and they're thinking, what's this idiot doing in a shed talking into a microphone when he could be out there feeding us? So, they're... The ducks are having an impromptu feed at the moment and they more or less sieve the grass with their beaks and they they eat very quickly, partly because that's what they do and also because they know that Princess Leia and her sibling Darth will turn up, monster them and pinch their grub. They're always on the make, the ducks, and um, Cloud and Razors have got more greedy since uh, 
uh, Anonymous has turned up because Anonymous is basically a feather-clad dustbin who uh, just eats and eats and eats. Really, I should have fed them in a bowl because you can get worms and weird stuff in the ground which uh, is, aren't good for, for birds if they eat them. But uh, oh, Razors has come back and I can see Princess Leia from a distance. Has she noticed them? She's going round the corner. She's getting closer. Is she? Oh, here she comes. Yeah. Princess Leia one, ducks nil. And she's now pecking around the microphone. And she's thinking to herself, are my levels right, darling, as she pecks? But she's probably a bit of a silent pecker, which is illegal in Texas. Yes, there we go. And she's hitting the microphone at the moment, yes. Yeah. She could have had a career in music, you know, if she wasn't such a miserable clucker. And she's going round and round the microphone, a bit like a sort of maypole, and she's going under the apple tree. And she's doing some Pilates at the moment. She's doing a Pilates movement involving stretching. And she's thinking about lying down and getting rid of some heat by stretching her wings. It's, it's almost prehistoric. It's almost reptilian the way they do this. And we're back. Um, although Princess Leia isn't, she's gone off to go and molest somebody else. And Cloud the Duck has returned to the microphone where there's still some grain. And she's having a bit of an eat. Razors is toddling up as well. Uh, because you have to take your pleasures where you can. Mostly the ducks and chickens get on pretty well. It's only over food that they, that they have a bit of a barney, really. The rest of the time, there isn't a problem over territory much. And uh, the cockerel doesn't fancy the ducks. Um, and uh, the ducks don't fancy the chickens. Uh, in the past, bye-bye uh, razors. Yeah, she's off to go and fling herself in the pond. It's one round of jacuzzi-style excess if you're a duck in this garden on occasions we've had broody chickens and um, we've put duck eggs underneath them chicken eggs take three weeks to gestate duck eggs take a month and the duck has to keep them moist and keeps turning them otherwise the embryos can stick to the inside of the eggs and uh, we have uh, an incubator and if we're getting chickens to rear ducks what we do is we put um, china eggs under the chicken and for the first week the duck eggs go into the incubator where uh, it's, it's humid and the eggs are turned and then you put them under the chicken the chicken will turn them but uh, every morning and every evening I don some rubber gloves and take a, a container with some water chuck the chicken off the eggs uh, wet them, turn them and put them back so there's, there's a little bit of moisture if you don't do that, you can have some rather horrible tragedies because the chicken has an internal timer and after three weeks uh, she thinks, you should be hatching out, I'll help you. And the results can be really quite horrid. We didn't know this the first time we tried rearing ducks under a chicken uh, and she ended up 
from having six eggs to having two, and she started to peck one of them. It was 24 hours from when it should have hatched anyway. So what I did was I got a little bit of address envelope, um, sticky label, and stuck it over the crack bit because the, the shell had been damaged, but the membrane for the egg was okay. And the following morning, there was some cheeping noises, and there was this little beak pecking around the the end of the egg. But the paper meant that the duckling couldn't get out, so in the end I had to yank the paper off and the duckling spilled out. And uh, anyway, he grew up into uh, an enormous randy drake and forgot he was ever a chicken. But we did have another duck reared by chickens called Chuck, uh, and she was an Indian runner. And she never left. She stayed with the chickens. I mean, she loved water. We got a got her a little hip bath, baby pond. You know, one of these sort of four ninety nine plastic things. And you fill it up, and she'd come rushing in and fling herself into it, and whack, 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 and it was just gorgeous. You know, I really adore this. And the chickens, if you chucked duck food, these kind of floating pellets, if you chucked duck food into this thing, she'd be rushing around, eating this, and the chickens would perch on the end of this hip bath thing and eat the duck food as well, and it was all very convivial, so that was quite sweet. And in fact, uh, we had one chicken who was a serial mother, uh, who was uh, an Orpington chicken, uh, who was lovely, uh, called Priscilla. And she reared, I think, two or three litters of ducks. And I remember we got, uh, when the, the ducklings were about two days old, and they were little puffballs, and she took them out in, into the run where we, we kept them so, and was showing them how to forage and peck. And, of course, ducks don't forage and peck like chickens. So she was saying, well, look, you scratch like this. And the ducklings were looking at her going, what's this to understand? And she was going, well, it's obvious. And they wanted to swim. So what I did was uh, I got uh, a, one of these sort of cont- water containers that you, you stand plant pots in, which was about two inches deep, you know, a bit, a bit like a glorified baking tin and filled this with water and put a little wooden ramp on it. And the ducks, ducklings rushed up this ramp and flung themselves into the water. And, and, and mum, this chicken, was quite phlegmatic because you could see them swimming under the water. They were like little little feathery little feathery dolphins rushing about really quick. And then they came out and dried themselves and got under mum's wings and, uh, and fell asleep. And uh, she just accepted that. With my Lancastrian flock, eventually I had to, to sell them on because... I, I was sent by my dad to a vegetarian co-educational boarding school in Hertfordshire uh, where I had nothing to do with chickens at all, either uh, as a chicken keeper or a chicken eater. Um, and this was back in the mid-1970s. Uh, I mean, now vegetarian cooking is wonderful, but back then people didn't really understand it. So there was basically a lot of stuff that uh, was designed to look and have the texture of meat that didn't um, and a revolting concoction called proto-veg which smelt of dog poo and was a sort of bubbling mass of of orangey red gloop that was ladled into your bowl Um, and we had one uh, member of the kitchen staff and he used to see that we were quite miserable and do a little shimmy and detach his the top set of his front false teeth. So he, he gave him a, a sort of slightly hamsterish look. And he'd do this thing and then slop the dog guano mess into your bowl and off you went feeling slightly happier as you held your nose and had your dinner. Anyway, one day he got too excited and pooted forth his false teeth 
which ended up in the proto-veg. So there it was, smiling at you. Um, and <laughs> he was most embarrassed. Whipped out his false teeth, and, you know, blasphemed, rushed off, and uh, was never seen again. Well, he was, but there we are. Nowadays, vegetarianism is, it almost goes unremarked, but um, the school was, was quite innovative. Um, it had basically been set up just before, I think just before the Great War, by uh, people you might describe as Edwardian hippies. They were trying to create something that was more benign, um, which kind of worked for some people, but not for others. And the vegetarianism, I think, was, was a feature of that. Um, and it was a mixed blessing because I think although uh, the food we had was very nutritious, it was tended to be cooked by itinerant Australians uh, and people who, who weren't paid very much, who were just passing through and didn't really know how to cook vegetarian food. Uh, and so some of it was, was fairly unusual, I think. This isn't a misery memoir, but I was kind of conned into boarding school, really. Um, and I think the people who did the, the conning felt it was expedient and necessary. Um, my, my mother had carried on being unwell, and um, I'm not going to go into why and what, because although she's not with us, she's entitled to her privacy, and uh, my childhood recollections of it will be inevitably be a bit wonky. But, um, you know, she was having to concentrate on looking after her. My father had a very demanding full-on job. He was a special effects man. He did props and special effects in telly. Um, worked on things like on the buses and upstairs, downstairs. And the job was full-on and the hours were funny. And I think for him, the work was a bit of a sanity clause. And I, I, I get that now in a way that perhaps when I was a child, I didn't. But I was coming to the end of my primary education up in Lancashire. And I think they thought if I went to a local comprehensive, being sort of posh and southern and uh, with mixed ability social skills I get eaten for breakfast and they were probably right and my dad said well have you ever thought about boarding school and I thought yes I have and I hate the idea he said well there is one there is one and why don't you just have a look we'll just go and have a look and we went to this place which was in a, a series of of slightly eccentric Edwardian buildings with some sort of 1970s ones with leaky roofs attached and we were shown round by the headmaster, uh, who was a, a kind of raffish kind of chap. Uh, and I thought, I really don't like this at all. And he said, would you like to come here? And I thought, no. And I thought, we'd be rude to say so. So I said, I don't know. And he said, well, we'd like you to come. And I went home in the car, and the die was cast, really, which wasn't, wasn't as advertised. And my dad said, if you try for six weeks and see if you like it. So I tried it for six weeks and said, I hate it. And he said, try it for another six weeks. And I was there for five years. And I think it was a bit of a mutual disaster. I think it was a place where children with reasonable academic and social skills could take their freedom from what it did. It basically said, here is a box of delights, but you have to take them. Uh, the world will open up for you if you buy into our ethos. Uh, but, so, you know, education models, there's no right way to educate everybody because we're all different. Uh, and I was a child, I think, who at that point needed something much more prescriptive. Uh, I needed to know where the boundaries were and I needed to know they didn't move and shift if you pressed against them. Whereas this place, that was almost a given that actually 
you know, if particularly if you were going in the right direction, you could just keep pushing and pushing and go further and further. And I think some children found that very liberating and and really benefited from it. But um, for them, it, it was opening up the adult world. For me, it was um, well, it was like falling into a void. I really did need the grown-ups to say you can do this and you can't do that in a way they didn't. So. It was all a bit of a disaster, really, and um, I wasn't expelled, but I was asked not to come back, and I, I left that place after five years with a CSE grade two in history and nothing else, which doesn't really prepare you for, for life. I mean, it wasn't all bad. I was in the bottom set for most things, uh, amongst a sort of swirling mass of lumpy, lumpen, sort of feral children uh, who were at the bottom of the social and academic heap, who were kind of tolerated. went back a couple of years ago because I was asked to read a eulogy for one of the teachers who was a remarkable man who went there as a pupil in 1935, could have ended up at Bletchley Park as a code breaker but was a pacifist and said he couldn't do it, so ended up doing farm work. And he'd gone back and taught there and ended up running the junior school side of things. And he was an amazing man, you know, very charismatic, very bright, very interesting guy and his children had been there and his grandchildren had been there and they adored it they adored the ethos and everything else so their memories of it would be completely different from mine I mean I just just found the lack of privacy hideous I, I had that adolescent male capacity for complete foot in mouth and actually teenagers are not forgiving and if you're having to share a room with five other teenagers you're sticking your foot in your gob every other day uh, it, it can be very wearing for everybody and it was unsatisfactory. I mean, there were funny bits. Um, I, well, most of them involved bad taste, actually. Um, I mean, for instance, a friend and I went into town and bought some unpleasant processed sausages and went to the most junior boarding house where there was a cooker and we got a frying pan and we fried our illicit contraband sausages uh, and we saw a member of staff coming up the drive so what did we do we picked up our still cooking sausages and stuffed them into our trouser pockets and uh, our eyes were watering because our flesh was burning by the time she arrived and we stood there with trembling lips and she said i can smell meat oh, no you can't i can and um anyway she couldn't prove that we'd uh, been cooking meat and eventually she went off so uh, we'd suffered for our sausages, so we yanked them out of our pockets, uh, wiped the uh, pocket fluff from their skins, stuffed them back into the frying pan, finished cooking them and ate them. The last year improved somewhat because there was a kind of plink, plink fizz of adolescent gonads dropping. I discovered girls, which was nice for me, but not so nice for them because they discovered me, which was a mixed blessing sort of flared trousers with uh, bicycle chain tooth marks at the bottom of them where, where I'd got them wrapped around the um, sprocket of my bicycle and uh, wing collar shirts and uh, bum fluff. You know, hi, girls. But anyway, most of them turned their noses up at this this vista of male bimbodon. But there were a couple of Finnish exchange students who'd come over the, for the summer, two girls, and possibly because English wasn't their first language, I didn't bore them into a coma. Uh, and, and one of them decided that, that she quite liked me, and I ended up having an incompetent snog with her under a stairwell. I don't know if you remember your first kiss. Mine involved a great deal of suction, a clash of enamel, 
But anyway, I was an extremely naive young man. I had no idea what to do next. And I asked a friend of mine who was a man of the world, and he rolled his eyes. and I said, oh, go and see her after lights out. I mean, what I was going to do when I got there, I had no idea. But anyway, it was a July summer evening, and she was in the opposite end of the school from me. And to get to her, I had to go around the outside of the school, and I was a real catch. I'm a bit like a disease, really. Um, I had a blue toweling dressing gown made by my stepmother with a little MG car club um, uh, fob stitched to it because those were my initials and I might realise it was mine. Orange Brentford nylon pyjamas. don't know if you remember Brentford nylon. Dangerous material in clothing. If you walk too fast, your knees rub together, your hair stood on end. Bedroom slippers that were half a size too big, some feet kept falling out of them. But anyway, I, I slept round in this gorgeous ensemble to where she was. And to get to her, I had to go through one heavy wooden creaky door, up a creaky flight of wooden stairs, along a creaky wooden corridor, at the end of which was an annex where they had registers where they ticked your name off, where they, they, they put you to, I was about to say, put you to sleep, put you to bed. And immediately in front of that was another flight of stairs leading up to the room where she was. As a frothing mass of adolescent testosterone and idiocy, I went through the creaky door, up the creaky flight of wooden stairs and looked, and there was a member of staff with the register in this this annex. And I thought, well, I can't go downstairs because he'll see me and he'll realise I'm in the wrong part of school. But I had a brainwave. There was a single loo directly in front of me. So I crossed the corridor in a purposeful manner into the loo, locked the door, and he didn't look up. So he didn't see that I was in the wrong bit of the school. As I flushed, I pulled back the chute bolt of the door and climbed out of the window, which was about 20 foot from the ground. But there was a big green drain pipe, big cast iron thing. So I got hold of that and shimmied down. And waited for him to go away. When I thought he had, I threw the door, started up the stairs. I heard this teacher's voice saying, what are you doing? So I ran round, the, but the light was off by this stage, so I ran round the back and then back into the bog. Light went on. I was keen on making a rapid escape, so I scrambled out of the window. My dressing gown cord had come undone, and I didn't get hold of the drain pipe properly, so I ended up with one foot against the wall, one hand behind the drain pipe, and I kept swinging in and out of view. I was like a morbidly obese fruit bat, or, you know big orange and blue flag and every time I sort of swung into view I could see them and I was just waiting for them to see me and I could hear words like expulsion and the death penalty I'm, I'm extemporizing slightly but you get the general gist anyway I scrambled down the drain pipe and went back frustrated but not as frustrated as the enormous queue for the loo the following morning because I'd forgotten to unlock the door this was the sort of thing that got me chucked out by the way it does relate to chickens just not yet. Uh, the the way that chickens interact when uh, they all live together is not dissimilar to lumpen teenage boys uh, when they're all put in, in, in multiple rooms and, and made to get on with each other. There's a definite pecking order with, if you have a cockerel, the cockerel tends to be in charge, but then there's, there's the sort of chief chicken uh, and everybody knows their place. Sometimes that can lead to bullying, um, but usually, well, I say usually, often... They sort themselves out and, and know where they are, um, which does mean that at mealtimes certain chickens always feed first and the cockerel tends to have certain favourites and they get to the grub more quickly as well. I do a talk to WIs and U3As about chickens and I used to say that it's, it's about sex, death and chickens. And I, I suppose if you live with other animals it's it's a microcosm about well i suppose if not, i don't want to be pretentious about this but about life itself really because you you do have a relationship with them 
uh, and it changes and they have different personalities and you respond to them in different ways and they respond to you in different ways. They're alive. They're endlessly fascinating. And they take you on, on a bit of a journey, really, um, quite where it's going. I don't know. I work from home and uh, I think you can hear why, really. I'm not going to say they're my only friends. You can make your own judgment. But I'd like to, I'd like to introduce them to you. You're probably wondering, why on earth am I listening to this? Well, I mean, it, if, if you don't like me, it'll tell you about Richard the Cockerel, his girlfriends Princess Leia, Darth, Slosher, Ronnie and Earl, um, who all have stories to tell, um, but their receptive language is limited, so they've got to come from me. And, of course, the ducks, Razors, Cloud and Anonymous, who, um, as you can tell, isn't. And they're busy metropolitan sophisticated lives I, I can tell you it's better than a gossip column in a national newspaper there are more feathers and uh, more jeopardy and more eggs and uh, my social worker has told me that I really need to tell you my story you see it's it's part of part of the the closure that I need so you're you're performing a social service listening to this the music in this podcast was composed by Johnny Easton and that wasn't him that was a duck. I'm Martin Gurdon. Thank you for listening to my podcast. It was a Laughing Frog production. Coming Easter Saturday, actors Brian Murphy and Linda Regan. In, in those days, the kind of um, sitcoms that we loved, we got to know the characters and we really liked the characters. Would be nice if it happened. You say, what do you mean, would be? You said, we're building the set now. <laughs> Sharing a life in comedy and a life of love. He had red and white stripes on his legs and you were standing there and you looked like a tube of toothpaste. Thank you very much. <laughs> Man About the House, first of all, then comes that spin-off series of Georgia Mildred with Youth of Joy. Chemistry. I think I'm OK. Mm. Bounce about, I can still got my legs in the air. Mm. Agents won't ring on Saturday. <laughs> Agents won't ring at all, darling. Settle down in the studio, please. Be quiet now. Talking is a Laughing Frog production. <laughs> <laughs>